Welcome to Moments in Transformation, a podcast brought to you by the In Transformation Initiative, ITI, the peace-building project founded in South Africa, which aims to take the lessons learned here and apply them to other mediation and peace-building efforts worldwide. This podcast will offer an insider's view of the negotiation process firsthand. The moments of drama, tension and breakthrough told by the very people who were there. We'll seek to shed light on the dynamics of peace building and give an insight into the painstaking world of striking compromises between former foes and forging lasting deals. I'm Karen Allen, your host for this podcast series, and today I'm joined by the veteran South African negotiator, former politician, lawyer and ITI founder, Rolf Mayer. Rolf, welcome to you again. Thank you. Nice to speak to you. This is your second episode on this series after a fascinating discussion we had last time round regarding your work in Colombia. I'm looking forward to hearing about some of the tipping points and and moments of breakthrough, if there were some, uh, as we focus on this podcast on Myanmar. First, though, allow me to set the scene. It's 2015. Myanmar's been in the grip of a lengthy, bitter power struggle between the military and the democratic forces of the NLD, the National League for Democracy, led by Aung San Suu Kyi. Landmark elections would be held later this year, allowing the NLD to form a national government, but there are deeply entrenched interests at stake. There are also ethnic tensions to contend with. Peace negotiations have been underway with some 17 armed ethnic minority groups in Myanmar with the aim of securing a nationwide ceasefire. There's also a parallel process aimed at reforming the constitution and, amongst other things, restructuring the army. The crackdown by the largely Buddhist military on the Rohingya Muslims in Rakhine state is still in its early stages. Jonathan Powell, Britain's top negotiator, is in Myanmar, helping to lead the peace process, but he's finding it a struggle to reach a breakthrough. Rolf, Myanmar is a fiendishly complex case study in peace building for ITI, so can we break it down for listeners? As a man with huge experience in negotiating peace in South Africa and behind the scenes in Northern Ireland and, as we heard in the last podcast, in Colombia, you entered the scene in Myanmar at the start of 2015 at the invitation of Jonathan Powell. What was ITI's role? At that point, I was invited by Jonathan to come by myself, sort of, to assist his efforts that uh, was already ongoing for some time. And uh, it was about helping him to share the experience from South Africa's point of view, but also to assess what could be done uh, differently as far as Myanmar is concerned. And um, <clears throat> for me, it was a, a learning experience at first. Uh, to... Had you ever been to Myanmar before? Was this a, had you been even as, a, as an independent traveller? The first time I went there was the previous year, 2014 beginning of 2014. And I was asked to go there by F.W. de Klerk, our former president, my former boss, uh, my principal during the negotiations in South Africa. And and he um, was asked to send a delegation there to meet with Aung San Suu Kyi. Um, and, and he wanted me to be part of that delegation. So <clears throat> that was actually my first time also meeting her. She was then uh, recently elected to parliament and as leader of the opposition. And so I met her in that capacity as leader of the opposition first. Um, But that was my first visit. 
uh, and then came Jonathan and asked me to join him. And, and so I started to get a better understanding. It's a complicated situation in, in Myanmar. I came to, to understand it better every time I went there. I went sort of frequently mm-hmm. together with, with Jonathan. And it was about at that stage, pre the end of 2015 elections, it was during the time of the military government still, and they had the, what was called the military, uh, the Myanmar Peace Center that, that was organizing and facilitating the peace negotiations. It was a complicated situation because all or the majority of those negotiations took place outside of Myanmar, mainly in Thailand. And, and so this process was ongoing. It was backwards and forwards, um, you know, but I think one of the shortcomings quite frankly, was the fact that we didn't spend enough time there. So it was come and go, in and out. My reading was that it would have been more effective in that particular case if we had spent more time there on an ongoing basis to influence the situation, give advice to both sides. And that's the point, isn't it? It is about both sides. Because I know we were talking in the last podcast about whether we use the word mediation, whether we use the word negotiation. In this case, from my perspective and the view that I still would hold there, it's more about advising. The beauty was the fact that we had uh, credibility on both sides. In other words, on the national government side, as well as with the armed ethnic groups, and as a result of which it was possible to actually give that advice. So um, during the time when Jonathan Powell invited you in, what were the big moments, if you like, where you were able to share your South African experience? I think the, the moment arrived when we could say to the military government in, in Myanmar, pre the 2015 elections, to say, come and see for yourselves what happened in South Africa. And they sent a delegation of senior generals, active generals at the time, that came to South Africa. It was very much below the radar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, was no not supposed, no it was not supposed to be known. But they came and we exposed them to the South African experience. And what sort of people were they able to meet on that, to visit? Well, people who were part of the South African process. Not only from the security environment or the military environment, but also from, let's say, the human rights environment, because we wanted to get an impression left with them that it is possible to make peace within a situation that was seen by many as insurmountable in South Africa. So we tried to paint the picture as it was pre-negotiations in South Africa way back in the early 1990s. And, And they went back and they were so impressed with what they heard, they convinced the, the chief of the, of the military back in Myanmar to say, we have to send more people. And again, when I later on met the chief of the military in Myanmar, he said to me, he was so impressed, he would like to come himself. And we always planned for that to happen. But then came the election, the change of government, and, you know, the whole scene obviously started to change. And one of the things that I want to highlight is what happened really in 2017, because, of course, the spotlight shifts. You return to Myanmar in 2017 with a really different task. Uh, You're there as part of an advisory board tasked with assessing recommendations made by the late Kofi Annan on tackling the crisis in Rakhine State. And Sang Suu Kyi, she's invited you here personally it was a real shift, though, from what you were doing before back in 2015. Why was it such a, a different focus? Well, she probably thought it was necessary to 
put emphasis on the need for implementation of the Kofi Annan recommendations. Just to put it in the context, there were major disruptions and violent attacks on the Rohingya Muslims in the north of Rakhine State in 2016 already. And then came the Kofi Annan Commission to investigate that. They made the recommendations, and on the very day that they delivered their report, in August of 2017, new violence broke out, Mm -hmm. which was much bigger than ever before, and as a result of which hundreds of thousands of Rohingya Muslims fled and found refuge in in Bangladesh. So this was a turning moment in terms of the world opinion, I can say, as far as Myanmar is concerned. And Aung San Suu Kyi was under pressure to, to be seen to do something about it. Her copybook was seen as, as, as blot, blotted in many, many respects, but um, she was handling a difficult situation. Un- unfortunately, uh, I mean, there's a lot of explanations that one can give in her defence. Not everything is, <laughs> can be defended, but and therefore the case also ended finally in the ICJ, as mm-hmm. we all know. But she was then asking us as a small group to come and advise on on how the coffee and non recommendations can best be implemented. And that is what we engaged in with them. So for about six months or so, this board was advising, making regular trips there, going to the Rakhine State. I was then at that stage for the first time, I think it was January of 2018, that I went with the group to, to Rakhine State. could still see the leftovers of the burned villages, etc. Did it remind you of some of the images of, of South Africa during those very troubled times? It, it reminded one of, of what we have experienced in terms of forced removals mm-hmm. and, and things like that that happened in the South African case. I must, however, say that in that particular case in Northern Rakhine, it was devastating because villages were really burned down. So now the focus was completely different. I took off my eye from the rest of the peace process in Myanmar, and I started to take a specific interest as to what is going on in northern Rakhine State. And knowing what I was trying to work through in my own mind was like against the odds, because the government in Naypyidaw, the capital, didn't want to recognize this. Not the, the military, but to some extent also not the civilian government. So when the, the this advisory board came to an end in August of 2018, I then offered my services at the personal level to Aung San Suu Kyi and said to her that based on the South African experience, I think there is something that can be done specifically in, in, in those areas where the violence originated before. And before we get into the recommendations that you made, and we're going to start talking about the peace committees, which were really transformative, at that point, Rolf, what leapt out to you in terms of the similarities between what you'd experienced in South Africa and what you were seeing in the ground that led you to believe that there could be some common lessons? I think the main point that struck me was the fact that here in, in this specific area of northern Rakhine State, there were different communities living together from opposing sides. Rohingya Muslim on the one side, Rakhine Buddhist on the other side, as well as a number of other minority ethnic mm. communities. Mm. And it reminded me of the fact that we had to deal with similar circumstances in South Africa. Not necessarily in South Africa's case, people with different religious orientations, but different ethnic 
origins. And are you thinking particularly of the period in the, in the early 90s, the uh, Inkata fighting with ANC, fighting with other groups, and you know, not to mention the, the racial division between white and black South Africa? It's exactly that. And also the level of violence that took place in South Africa. We didn't have refugees, but we had huge violence, yeah. killings. Yeah. As we all know, there were more killings in South Africa in the period after Mandela was released than before. And, and, and so from the experience that we had then, that we couldn't control it. And of course, the part of government was, was still in, in in, in, in charge at that stage, we were blamed all the time of being the responsible third force. for it. Yep. Exactly. And then came, in our case, in South Africa, the peace accord, the national peace accord. And through that, the implementation of local peace committees that provided for a bottom-up approach where people from opposing sides for the first time learned to sit across the table with each other and look each other in the eye and, and address the reasons for the conflict at the local level. And it was based on that experience and what my memory served me. I, I then said to, to Aung San Suu Kyi, I think we have something that we, can, that we can test. And she immediately welcomed it and said, please come along. And in practical terms, what was the function of the Peace Committee? How did you sell it to the people on the ground? In South Africa's case, it was fortunately a structure that came about because of an inclusive agreement between all the political opponents at the time. The National Peace Accord was signed by Mandela, Boutelese and de Klerk on the 14th of September 1991, by the way. And, and that helped us to institute these local peace committees. In other words, it was an inclusive agreement and the state backed it up by giving support to the peace structures that were formed. And you know what? If I look back at it as we speak, it's a pity we still don't have those committees in operation today in South Africa. And in the Myanmar setting, was the aim to use the peace committees as a transmission mechanism so that any developments that were happening at national level could be transmitted down to the people and vice versa? Or was it more a practical purpose? Okay, so now <clears throat> back to the scene. August 2018, I made the offer to Aung San Suu Kyi and said, you know, I think we can help. And she welcomed it. And then I came back and engaged ITI because I couldn't do it by myself. And we needed a structure to actually do the necessary assessments. And, and from then onwards, it was ITI. It became directly involved. I went back several times over the next period of four or five months to Northern Rakhine State, together with some of my colleagues from, from South Africa, to firsthand investigate what was going on on the ground so that we could get a proper assessment. Are we not mistaking ourselves for something that doesn't exist? So, and this was fascinating. We, we started in the areas where the Rohingya were pushed out. And, and the place where we started was Mongdao. And if you look up in the history, that is where the, the main source of, of the Rohingya refugees that are today in Bangladesh uh, find themselves. That is where they came from. So we then started. The Muslim, by the way, community is still the majority in that part of Rakhine State, mm -hmm. even today. So we, we then started to engage with the communities. We invited them, first separate. And we engage with them four or five times 
repeatedly to make sure that we have a proper understanding. But we engage separately and then jointly with the Rakhine Buddhists, the Rohingya Muslims, the smaller minorities, ethnic minorities. And in the end, I'd put the case to them to say, would you think about the possibility of working together in finding a mutual answer and a mutual future? Uh, spelling out what we have experienced in South Africa in that regard. And the answer was unanimously yes. You're listening to the Moments in Transformation podcast with me, Karen Allen, and my guest, veteran South African negotiator, Rolf Meyer. Today, our focus is on Myanmar and the behind-the-scenes moves to get peace talks back on track. Rolf, we're talking about the peace committees and the moment when you were able to convince the separate sides within those peace committees to come and effectively sit in the same room. But tell me, what sort of resistance did you face initially? As far as the actual moving forward is concerned, the the resistance I think that we can say we experienced was less than what I've expected. What is what is difficult about Rakhine, and I have to put this in context, is that you don't have an elected government in Rakhine State. It's an appointed government from Naypyidaw yeah. because it's an NLD government. But the majority party in Rakhine State is the Arakan National Party. In other words, the opposition. And they couldn't appoint their own government, which I think is a mistake. It's a failure from the side of Naypyidaw, from the NLD side. Mm. But nevertheless, that is the case. So here we had a government in, in Rakhine State in capital of a kind state, which is called Sitwe, and, and they were they were uncomfortable. Not seen as representative. Exactly, but, but also they didn't see us as potentially helpful. Mm. But did they see you as biased, or were you seen as a neutral party, do you I, think? Did I, you have to convince I, them over a period of time? I, I don't think they liked the idea that outsiders were trying to come and help them, yeah. despite the fact that we had the authority from Aung San Suu Kyi. So that was, that was the one complication or challenge that we had to meet. And the other one is, of course, the fact that at the local level, it's essentially the military that's in control. It's called the General Administrative Department, GID, that runs the administration of these townships and villages. And again, we needed to persuade each of those commissioners in charge that this task that we are starting to build and and to, to, to execute was necessary. But I must say, in the case of Mongdao, the commissioner started to play a positive role. How do you do that in practical terms? I mean, is it about formal meetings or is it about going and having a cup of tea with them at some point or, you know, doing informal things like was the case while we're caught in South Africa? Yeah. Can you give us a bit of insight of the sort of things that you were doing? When when we started off in in Mongdao, we, uh, we went to see the commissioner. Uh, the local mm-hmm. GAD person in charge, in other words, of the administration. He's a military man, comes from a military background, if I remember correctly, he was in military intelligence. So we started to sit in his office, we befriended him, and then we invited him for dinner. And then we had a bottle of wine together. And, and so we started to build a relationship back on the basis of what we have experienced in South Africa. And these things work. And in the end, he was extremely helpful in helping us to reach out to those communities and inviting them, the representatives from those communities, to come to Mongo to sit down with us and have the discussions with us. 
And I must say to his full credit, he never interfered. He was not in the same room as them. In other words, he allowed them to engage with us yes. on a separate basis. Can you give me a parallel of when that happened in South Africa, when you know you had those kinds of engagements um, and that informality? I think I must be very specific in that regard. My experience at the national level was, of course, the same. You know, if I I can be blunt about it, if if the ANC negotiators and ourselves from the government side at the time were not prepared to reach out to each other and have a whiskey together from time to time, we would never have understood each other in the way that we did. And 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 these things are important. If it's a cup of tea, it's fine. <laughs> But but do it in such a way that you can look each other in the eye outside of the framework of an agenda. One of the things that's very interesting, what struck me um, to come out of the discussion about um, the peace committees, is that it's built on the philosophy that you can't negotiate peace in a vacuum. So you're trying to build a coalition of shared interests. Is that the idea? I think the key point is peace is not consisting of a mechanical exercise. It's not consisting of what people would intellectually approve of or not. It's much deeper and much broader and much wider than that. I always say that in my own experience, from my, and I can speak here from my own deep emotional experience, if I didn't realize that I have to buy into the peace settlement in South Africa from within my own soul, my own heart, my own emotional conviction, I don't think I would have been able to work so hard to achieve it. It has a sort of a visceral nature to it. You can't just go through the motions. You can't just go through the motions and tick the boxes and think in pieces has arrived. And may I say, unfortunately, in some cases, I see it where people are working from the manual. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and they, they miss the point, quite frankly. In South Africa's case, when we talk about the local peace committees, there was a structure at national level which was inclusively and jointly operational. There was one at the regional level, in other words, provincial level. And, and so the, the local level had the safeguard almost from the top. And whatever they did, they could feed into the upper level. Yeah. In, in this case, in Rakhine State, that is not happening. Is there a danger that it reaches a sort of glass ceiling? It will reach a, a glass ceiling. That is a, that's a reality at the moment. And, and the problem in that regard is because of the nature of the representativity at the regional level, like I explained, the regional government is an appointed government. You know, nobody really takes authority. Sort of moving forward, and these peace committees are still going on, and I understand they've been quite instrumental during the COVID-19 pandemic in helping to um, literally arrange practical things on the ground and transmit important messages, masks, hand-washing, all the rest of that. Given that there is that structural limitation, um, as I talk to you today, do you still feel they have a critical role to play, or does the structure need to change for those peace committees really to be able to have that dramatic impact in the way that they had in South Africa? What is critical and what is necessary is that they, we have to roll them out. We have to have more peace committees. At the moment, they are presently, as we speak, formally only two. The one is in Mongdao and the other one is in Tamdwe. And we're giving full support to them. Those committees that are active have played a major role 
now in getting the different communities working together around health issues, etc., etc. So <clears throat> we've seen it in practice working. And of course, that has a spin-off effect. People are starting talking about it. And, and, and so the rollout in other townships will be much easier. And I want to emphasize that we're also working very closely with partners in Myanmar. How optimistic are you about the outlook, given the fact that these are very small steps that you're having to take? I've always said that I think um, the, the total problem in, in Myanmar is, can very easily be resolved. But it depends on a number of things. The one is they have to get a constitutional framework for which there's only one government, not two. Not a civilian government and a military government, as is the case right now. Uh, I think that is a major condition that has to be fulfilled. But once that is done, I think the solution is obvious. And that is a constitutional framework that provides for a federal system with high levels of autonomy for the different ethnic communities around the country. And uh, if you listen to them, most of them would say that is their aspiration. Even in the case of Rakai, despite the, the vicious disputes that are taking place, conflict that is taking place between Rakhine Buddhists, specifically the Arakan army, as they call themselves, and the national military. Despite that, I don't think in real terms, in final instance, the Arakan Buddhists, the Rakhine Buddhists, want separation from the country. In other words, I think if a suitable constitutional arrangement can be found, they will also be prepared to live with it. So overall, I think the, the conflict in Myanmar can be resolved. The problems on the ground with the Rohingya Muslims is, is very specific and very difficult. But I think the international community in that case can play a very important role to help to resolve by keeping the pressure on in favor of a constitutional arrangement. And I think, unfortunately, that has got lost because in my, and uh, I have a very direct opinion about this, I think, unfortunately, the international community lifted the sanctions too early, lifted the pressure on the military regime. And they have no leverage now. And now they don't have the leverage. Yeah. Yeah. Finally, I must ask you this, Ralph. Peace committees, you know, we've devoted a large chunk of the podcast to discussing these. Are there applications for these kind of peace committees in other conflicts, either around the African continent or beyond? I, I have no doubt about it. You know, um, our colleague Fani de Tue, who is now helping us in Myanmar, has practiced it already in the case of Iraq. Mm. He, has, he was working there for, I think, two and a half years for the UN, UNDP, implementing the same concept in a different way. Of course, each case is different. But from what we are doing at the moment in the case of South Sudan, as well as Central African Republic, I can say absolutely yes. This application for that, in fact, just as recently as this last week, I had discussions with the UN about looking at their future role in the case of South Sudan. And we were discussing exactly this. How can we build peace that can be sustainable? And the general conclusion is, if it's happening at the grassroots level, with a bottom-up approach, can be lasting. Ralph Mayer, absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Karen. You've been listening to Moments in Transformation, the podcast that takes a behind-the-scenes look at the world of international peacemaking, brought to you by the In Transformation Initiative ITI. 
If you want to comment, you can drop us an email to ivor, that's I-V-O-R, at intransformation.org.za. Thank you very much, and we look forward to you joining us for the next episode. Bye for now.